This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Julius Kim is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and Dean of Students at Westminster Seminary, California. He did his doctoral research on the rise of the Latitudinarian movement in 17th century Anglicanism and has contributed to Covenant Justification and Pastoral Ministry and Heralds of the King, Sermons in the Legacy of Edmund P. Clowney. He's also well known for his addresses to the Desiring God Conference and to the Westminster Seminary, California Annual Faculty Conference. These addresses and his published writings are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Julius, and welcome to the island. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. Here we are on an island. I'm just visiting, and you are marooned. <laughs> you had taken with you five books. Uh, we assume scripture in some form, English translation or Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, or all of the above. And you had some other books with you in a, a sealed leather protected pouch. And so you're waiting to be rescued. And here you are on the island. What five books have, have you brought with you to read while you're waiting to be rescued? It's a good question. As you know, it's so tough for bibliophiles like myself to just uh, narrow it down to five books. But uh, if the scripture is assumed, if I have that, I'd actually want to take with me not just an English version, quite possibly a Greek and Hebrew as well, but strangely enough, I'd want to take a Korean version of the Bible. Now, for, for several reasons. One, it continues to force me to read the Bible in a different language, perhaps not my original heart language, but a language in which I'm I'm generally familiar, but would like to learn more about. And to read it in a, in a language that will continue to force me in my cognitive process to work at it. Because I think sometimes we read books, especially books that we're very familiar with and that we love, and we don't really work hard at it. It almost becomes kind of an automated process where we just read and we're not actually thinking about what we're reading, the impact it has upon our minds, our hearts, our lives. And I think by reading it in a different language that I'm fairly comfortable with, but not very proficient in, will force me cognitively to really concentrate and think about what I'm reading, uh, not to undermine its devotional or uh, value in reading Scripture, but uh, I really think that the faith is more than just a, a pious activity for the heart, but it's an activity for my faith to grow in my mind as well as in my life. So I think by reading it in a different language, given the opportunity that I'll have on an island, it would be great to read it in Korean as well. You'll have lots of time. Yes. <laughs> now, you used an interesting expression. You said heart language. What does that mean? It may be another way of putting that is what, what language do you generally dream in? And most of the time, if not all of the time, I dream in English. But there are several times when, for example, when I was living in Korea for some time, several years ago on my sabbatical, when I was surrounded by so much Korean, not only around me, but as I began to explore my own identity in light of my Korean heritage and background and upbringing, I started to actually dream in Korean and through that experience different parts of my own kind of who I am and what I like, what I value, what I don't like. And, and so I think Heart language captures the kind of language that goes just a little bit deeper than the cognitive awareness of words and their symbolic meaning, but actually goes deeper into the emotion, into the soul. 
perhaps. The listener may or may not read scripture in a language other than English. Sure. What's it like to read the Bible in Korean as distinct from English? Are there particular characteristics? First of all, which Korean translation would you use and why? And what characteristics might it have? Yeah, the one that I've uh, used in the past and continue to use now, not very regularly, uh, but would be the equivalent of the NIV in Korean. It's a more dynamic translation. I find it a little bit easier to to read than some of the older versions that have been available in the Korean language. When was the Bible first translated into Korean? Christianity in Korea has only been there for about 100 years. But even back then, you know, they some argue that the start of Korean Christianity was the Pyongyang revivals of 1907. Christianity has been in Korea prior to that, probably. Catholics were there in the 17th century. Didn't make much of an impact. But uh, the Korean Protestant church as we know of it today really started with the work of two missionaries, one a medical missionary and one a minister, and around the late 18, mid-1880s to mid-1890s, around that time, through their work, and then really started to grow in the early 1900s. Korean Protestant Church recently celebrated their 100-year anniversary in 2007, but they were already translating uh, back then. Many of these early missionaries were translating portions of the Gospels, for example, in the late 1890s, 1890s or so. Are there particular challenges in getting Scripture into Korean? Yeah, that's a good question. Again, I'm not an expert on translation issues, uh, not only in English, but let alone in Korean. But just in my own personal anecdotal experience, Korean just works a little bit different than English. For example, the way the grammar is structured makes it a little bit difficult. For example, most English sentences start with subject, verb, and then there's like a predicate of some sort of direct object of some sort. The Korean language grammatically functions kind of opposite. It often starts with an indirect or a direct object, goes to the subject, and then you actually get the, the verb oftentimes at the very end of the sentence. So simultaneous translation is very difficult because you actually have to wait for the verb. Now, oftentimes in context, the translator can figure it out, but I've tried to do translation on the spot. It's very difficult for that reason. I'm so used to speaking subject, verb, direct object, subject, verb, indirect object, et cetera, in that order. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the subject to come. Okay, I got the subject. Okay, I wait for the verb, and the verb doesn't show up. <laughs> so you just have to wait until the verb comes. So it becomes very difficult. And uh, one of our colleagues, our good friend Joel Kim, is a tremendous translator because of his ability to be able to kind of figure out what the verb will probably be and get there. But I think that's one of the challenges. Uh, but again, we're, going, we're talking about English into Korean. Again, the, as you know, Scripture was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew and, and Greek. So there are other host of issues because of the way Greek syntax work, Greek grammar works, and then going from the Greek to Korean is a whole, there's a whole new set of issues involved. What kinds of assumptions might be reflected or inherent in the Korean language and culture that a translator might face and have to overcome? I would think that certain, how should I say, the, the spirituality, the aspect of spirituality in Korean is very different from, let's say, a Western worldview. Uh, many people in Korea do take into account the existence, or whether real or not, of a spiritual world uh, of, of demons, of spirits that are all around us, that impact us. And as a result, I think a translator would have to understand that worldview in which people think and to try to make the Bible clear in light of some of those worldview uh, issues. But that's just one, that's just one issue that, that just popped into mind. Uh, on the positive side, let's say on the flip side of the coin, not, not, not so much a challenge, but then you've got other, let's say, Eastern values and assumptions that work very well into a kind of a Semitic worldview, like the importance of clan, the importance of family, family connection, not to see oneself individually, but federally, corporately is a good word for that, or federally because of the hierarchical structure in Asia, uh, kind of a federal headship idea or corporate idea. And so some of those Semitic worldview 
principles or themes work very well in some Eastern contexts. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Okay, what's next in your book bag? Probably, this was a tough one because I was trying to think of a theological book that I would take with me that I could read for a long time and continue to challenge me. To be honest, it, I, I know this sounds perhaps trite, and um, it would have to be Calvin's Institutes. Uh, for me, I think Calvin... In those two volumes, at least the, the, the Battles edition that I have, just puts together the Christian faith in such a clear, cogent, comprehensive, and yet devotional, doxological way. That's a tremendous uh, work that uh, I think will stand the test of time, and it has in many ways. It continues to speak after 500 years and continues to not only speak to scholars, but to lay people. And I still remember when I first read that, to be honest, I didn't read it until seminary. And uh, I was just astounded at its breadth, but also its depth, spiritual depth, not just intellectual breadth, but spiritual depth that was present in Calvin's mind and heart. And I, I just really thought that here we have a man who not only understands the Christian faith as presented in the Bible, but has really brought it into his heart as well. It's a mind and heart religion, a life religion. And I thought he just, to me, I just... I, there's no comparison, I think, to the Institutes in terms of one volume. I know it's two, but one book. One work. One work that just does it all for me. You used four adjectives. Did I? <laughs> First of all, you said it was clear. Now, that's an important adjective. Why is it clear and why is that important? First, I could understand it okay. very simply. It's important Even, because it's there, very are, important. there are a lot of books out there that are maybe important books or books that are said to be important that are hard to read and difficult and, and not clear. And I'll give you an example, and I, don't, and I mean this with all the utmost respect to these authors, but for example, in my first year of seminary, I still remember this. It's 1993. I'm reading Calvin on the one hand. I'm reading Van Til on the other. And again, both brilliant men, gifts to the church in many ways. But I struggled with Van Til the first time. I, I'll be honest. I struggled with him. Sure. Yeah. Well, any honest person will tell you that Van Til can be, yes. be because of his philosophical background. That's right. And he himself admitted. And frankly, his style, too. He himself admitted that he wasn't a great writer. He struggled to write. You can see that in uh, John Meather's terrific biography of Van Til. So that's interesting. So Calvin's clear, and you said cogent. What does that mean, cogent? There's a logic to his flow of thought. There's a cogency. There's a way his arguments fit together. He, he, he makes a proposition or he makes a statement, and he starts to argue that premise through the use of Scripture, through the use of the ancient fathers, what have you. So that by the time you get to the end of that paragraph, you're like, that makes sense. It holds together. There's a holding togetherness. It's sticky. It's, it has glue to it, you know? <laughs> well, there's, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Exactly. And I think we oftentimes, in our desire to be so profound or eloquent, we forget that it's oftentimes a simple beginning, middle, end, as Aristotle said and others, that makes our, our ideas much more sticky. And I think that Calvin's what's called his lucid brevity. That's clarity and cogency, I think, together in one way. It's just very clear, but it's also understandable. It follows a train of thought. It works together. One idea leads to another idea, and they're related. They're not just random. Exactly. And so it's, I remember when I was first reading that, and I was in the reference room here at the, the, the best seminary in the world. Uh, and now you and, have your own copy, right? Oh, sorry. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, having those aha moments it's like, uh, oh, aha, I get it, and just, just profoundly impacted by his writings.
you used another adjective, which I think is really interesting and very apt. You said it's doxological. What does that mean? Doxological is a fancy word that means worshipful of doxology, of giving praise and honor and worship to God. As I've not only read his institutes, but I've read some of his sermons and read his biographies as well, the more I become impressed that for Calvin, as his faithful pilgrim, his desire to study the scriptures and know more about God was ultimately for the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. I know I'm being anachronistic. That's later, one century later. That language is in the Institutes. Excellent. And, and I know that that's the, that's the answer for the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But I think essentially, that's, I think you're right. I think you're right. And so for Calvin, his whole purpose in life, his whole, his whole desire to know God and to make him known, was ultimately for the glory of God, to worship him and all that he's been given as a scholar, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father. Calvin loved God without any question, but he also loved people. Absolutely. And probably when we think of Calvin, we think of him being a little dyspeptic, a little uh, uptight and uncomfortable. But in fact, <laughs> he did what he did because he was concerned about people as image bearers, wanted them to, to know Christ and he wanted them to, to know themselves, to grow, to be conformed to Christ. He wanted them, first of all, to trust in Jesus and then to grow in that. When, you, when you're reading Calvin, did, did that hit you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not only his, his, uh, his institutes, but also in his commentaries as well. You, you, you would think that of all the places in his writings, the commentaries would be just much more dry, more academic, but it's not. Even his commentaries where he's actually working through the Greek, the Hebrew, what have you, he have these like statements thrown in that are just very worshipful. It's, it's almost as if he's working on it, he's writing, or with his secretary, he's working on his commentary. He almost has to just stop and just give praise to God as he's discovered yet another wonderful truth about God's character, his, his person, his work of Christ, etc. And uh, he just erupts in praise. Study leads to doxology. Absolutely. And we, can, we never want to separate the two. And I know sometimes in seminary where there's a lot of work, I, I, I admit, but my goal, and I think I can speak for the entire faculty, is that all of this is going to lead to doxology. Study while you pray and pray while you study. Absolutely. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. What's your third volume? This may seem like I'm cheating, but the collected works of Shakespeare. I think for me, at least in the English language, no one really gets at the condition of man and how man lives in this world in such poetic, artistic ways as Shakespeare. I've just so grown to so appreciate his writings, his plays, his sonnets, etc. In fact, just this morning I had a, a breakfast appointment with some friends from Canada and from Germany, and we talked about Shakespeare and how, how even for them in their 60s now, they're looking back at their life, they can still remember lines from Shakespeare that they had to memorize as young kids, which our kids don't do anymore to their shame. Well, your kids might. My kids do. Well, my kids go to a kind of a unique school, so they do. And I think we need to recapture some of that. And there's something about Shakespeare's not only ideas— 
but the way he captures his ideas in ways almost and the way the word the wording that we used this morning was almost melodic the way he puts his words together ideas together almost as, like a song that's why he called it a sonnet right because it's poetry and poetry speaks deeper i think sometimes than just prose prose is very powerful don't get me wrong you know as somebody who makes his living speaking talking lecturing preaching. I'm always trying to find the right word or the right phrase to capture meaning, deep meaning, without having to spend five minutes on an idea. And I think poetry, as opposed to different genres of literature, has that quality of being able to capture deep meaning in uh, very short, concise ways. Economy. Economy, that's a good word. To capture deep meaning with economy. There's something powerful to that. Furthermore, when you're able to speak with economy, but also in language that is figurative, metaphoric. It touches different parts of your soul. It touches not only your mind, so it causes you to to think rationally about an idea, but somehow it actually moves your heart. And I think poetry has that wonderful ability to do both with economy. And and, and there's something beautiful. And, And I think that's because God made it. God was the one who created true poetry. And there's some in Scripture. Oh, there's tremendous. In fact, I'm not sure of how many uh, of our listeners know this, but early on when I was still doing my MDiv, I actually toyed with the idea very seriously about going into to do my PhD work in, in Old Testament studies, particularly because I fell in love with the Psalter. I had a professor at that time, many of you may know Mark Furtado. I took a class with him called Psalms and Wisdom Literature, and he started opening up the Psalms and the Hebrew, the beautiful Hebrew poetry. And it just, it, it was just, again, it was doxological. Every class we would look at a different psalm in the original Hebrew, break it down and to show what the psalmist is doing. And it started to sing. The scripture started to sing to me and my ears and my heart. And that's when I knew that poetry had a profound ability, like music does, uh, to speak to different parts of the soul. So I think Shakespeare has that. Shakespeare is able to do that with economy, with brevity, but to do it in such a way that really touches the soul in ways that just Regular prose cannot. Not prose can, but not in the kind of economy that poetry does. In the 1940s, Dorothy Sayers gave a talk during the war, and that talk was published as The Lost Tools of Learning. I know you're familiar with this essay. Can you talk briefly about the importance of that essay and why the li- the listener might benefit from reading it? Dorothy Sayers, uh, during that time, she was, she, was, she was a professor at Oxford, and she was involved with a group of other scholars who became concerned with the state of education and educational philosophy as they were seeing it, in England at least. And um, and what they discovered was that due to new models of what we call progressive education, which, which just goes back all the way perhaps even to Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, this French philosopher, who started to argue that, no, we don't want our kids to learn by memorizing old books or ideas, but we just want them to experience nature. And as nature presents itself, they'll learn, they'll figure it out. So let them learn math by going to the candy store, not by giving them math problems, et cetera, et cetera, or how math somehow is, is connected to the pyramids of, of Egypt, that, uh, that your study of geometry actually has implications to history, and that has implications to the way music works together mathematically, and that has implications to the way you draw lines and shapes in art, that there's this interconnectedness to all of truth as Dorothy Sayer would say, that we've lost. And, and the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of truth has become so compartmentalized in our educational system, we're no longer seeing the big picture of truth and how it all works together. And so she wrote this uh, seminal essay, as you mentioned, Scott, in which she argued that we need to recapture the way education has been done for centuries, 
perhaps arguably for 1,500 years from what we can trace, in, at least in Western civilization. And we need to recapture those tools of learning, and she would call them, she used different words to call it, based upon the life stage of the child as, as he or she is growing up. And so, for example, in the early period of a child's existence, called the grammar stage, this is the time in which we try to give as much knowledge, factual knowledge, about the world in which they live, and to memorize it understand, not understand it completely yet, but memorize as much as the grammar, the grammar of math, the grammar of history, the grammar of English, the grammar of that. So you, you need the facts before you could put those facts together. If you don't have facts, then you have nothing to work with. You, you need, you need the, the putty. The stuff. The stuff. The, the Lego pieces to all work together before you can build a Lego house. Then it leads to a, a period in life where in junior high, as you know, in developmentally, junior high kids love to argue, love to complain, love to try to figure out why. Why this? Why They're that? They're analyzing. That's right. And so Dorothy Sayers picked up on the idea of what the logic phase or the dialectic phase of learning in this period where now... Now, based on all the stuff that you've learned, let's try to put it together. How does this fit with that? Why does that work and why does that doesn't work? How come this argument works and that argument doesn't work? It's why did this happen in history and not that, et cetera, et cetera. And so during this dialectic phase or logic phase, you're putting coherency and consistency to the grammar of every subject. And then you move on to the last stage of learning, what we call the high school stage or the rhetoric stage, in which now that you have the stuff put into a coherent whole, now can you articulate it in writing as well as in speaking in ways that are clear, cogent, and frankly, doxological. And so I think this is the kind of learning Dorothy Sayers was trying to recapture. It's not her idea. It's an old idea that's been passed on for centuries that I think is what we're missing today in our current educational situation. I'm just thankful that... uh, I was able to discover more of this kind of liberal arts, humanities-based education, and and to see my kids flourishing in that model has been a joy. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What's your fourth book? I'd have to say Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. And I know that for many years it was a controversial book in America when it was first produced. But I think there's something about the story of this young Holden Caulfield and his desire to find his identity in this big bad world of adulthood. He's transitioning from his teenage years to somehow become an adult. And he got disenchanted, disillusioned by the adult world as it was presented to him. And he somehow found something pure, innocent, and good about childhood. For those of you that remember the story, He envisions himself or he dreams of him being this catcher in the rye, this rye field, a field full of wheat and rye, which innocent children are playing and enjoying. And he's standing over at at the end of a cliff, making sure that they don't fall over. So he puts on this kind of heroic persona to make sure that the kids remain this kind of pure, innocent phase and not fall over the cliff into adulthood. And uh, and so for me that was it was a profound tale that spoke to me at, in my kind of angst-filled teenage years when I'm trying to figure out who I am, what does the future hold? Uh what does God have in store for me? Uh, just trying to figure out my life and it, it felt like I connected. Not that I'm holding Caulfield, but in some way it was a, it was one of the first books that I actually personally connected with. When it first came out, as you indicated, it was hotly controversial, and it was banned in a lot of places. That's right. But by the time I was in school in the 70s, it was being prescribed as part of the English curriculum in high school. And 
You suggested earlier that the initial reaction was due to the mores of the time. Can you comment briefly on the shift in attitudes towards Ketcher? Because there's a time when a Presbyterian minister would never have said publicly, Ketcher and the Rye was a formative book for me. So that's interesting. <laughs> it is, and that, that's why I want to be careful how I say this. But again, I, I think my— un- And I don't mean that as a criticism. No, I no, think it's I understand really interesting. That. And I think part of that is because of my understanding— of common grace and what God has given to us in this world for us to get to experience and know him better. Surely we we know God and experience God primarily through his word, through his church, etc. But we never want to take the attitude that everything else that he created is somehow just in and of itself bad or evil. That would be an unchristian idea. I think it's an unbiblical idea. If God truly is a good creator, then we have to somehow with our cosmology or our understanding of, of God's creation of all things, we somehow need to figure out then how do we then take into consideration things like public school or dealing with non-Christians in the workplace. They're not Christians, so how do we do it? So how we approach our culture, which is non-Christian, let's say, needs to be informed by a thorough and a robust doctrine of cosmology or doctrine of creation that I think is more biblical. And I think in the 40s and 50s, I think partially, and again, I'm talking to a historian here, so I want to be careful, but I think America went through a shift, what we would call the kind of the fundamentalistic, modernistic controversies of the 20s and 30s, of which Machen was a part, that kind of uh, pushed American Christianity and its sensibilities into a particular trajectory in which Christianity had to be defined by certain black and white ways of viewing the Bible and the world. And so to be a true Christian meant you have to be an inerrantist. I I could agree with that. But then they started adding more things like to be a true Christian, you have to be premillennial. To be a true Christian, you can't drink, smoke, and dance, you know, all the the kind of— The list got longer and— Exactly. And the doorway got narrower. And I I think part of that then led to a misunderstanding and a misappropriation of the good things God has given to his people and to his world that we can— utilize for our own growth and experience to somehow then say that's banned. And so I still remember, Scott, when I was in youth group and and with all, again, with all due respect to our pastors at the time and things like that, we had one of these kind of like record burning parties, for lack of better words. And I remember uh, much... I always wondered what the toxic fumes for burning (laughs) vinyl must have been. And, and, you know, and and, and, in that time and place, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know... Saying how do you, negative how do you about burn that, MP3s? Yeah. Well, go on. <laughs> and I remember we had to bring all of our secular records, including one of my favorite albums, Led Zeppelin IV. I can't believe we burned that uh, class, uh, classic record. But I understand that. That was the culture then. That was the understanding of Christianity then. And so that's why I think during the 50s, I'm trying to remember when Catching the Right came out. I want to say 50-something like that, wasn't it? 1951. At that time, the Christian right in America had so been influenced by this understanding of, for a lack of better words, Christian fundamentalism. And I think that's, that's part of the culture of America at the time. Much of it good. I think their intentions were good. However— So we can't identify Christianity with middle American cultural mores from the 1950s. Yeah. First of all, I'm I'm not even sure what that is because I'm a Korean-American bicultural person from Southern California, let alone middle America, or let's say the Bible Belt, you know, in in, in the southern part of— from the United States. So, what's your last, your fifth volume? Oh, I only have one more book. I'm already down to my last. The rescue is not far away. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Now that I chose a book from my earlier years, let's say during my teenagers, I'm going to I'm going to choose a book that I've read recently that again was quite profound and moving. It's a recent book and I'm I'm sorry I don't know the author's name, but the novel is called The Kite Runner. It's by Khaled Hosseini, 2003.
it was a powerful story. When The Kite Runner first came out, it shot up the, the New York Times bestseller list very quickly and stayed there for many weeks. And so I thought, you know, I, I think I should read this so that I would be able to have some to talk about when you know, a book like this would come up in, with my neighbors or people that I meet. It's good for us to do that. But also just because I love good novels and I love good storytelling. And this is a powerful story, very simply, of one man's journey of living this kind of selfish, self-centered, cowardly life. And how through the sacrifice of essentially a servant, he learns what it truly means to be human and redeem his own life and perhaps redeem the life of his own adopted son. So it's just a powerful story of sin and redemption, essentially. And it just spoke volumes to me, not only because of the powerful themes present of sin and redemption that mirrors much of the gospel, of course. That just resonates, I think, with many people because we're all created to know God in that way. But also because, because it was written in a different culture. It was written in the Afghani culture, That's a lot, which is much more close, closer. It's, it's closer to, let's say, the Asian culture than it is to the Western culture. And, and for that, I, I just connected with it at just different levels, not only thematically, but also kind of culturally, for lack of better words. Now, Korea is very different from Afghanistan, but still, I would recommend it highly to those who have not read it. Now, mind you, it's not a PG book. There are parts of the book that are quite disturbing because it was written during a time, during the Taliban era of Afghanistan. And it was just, it's just it was a brutal, horrific time period. And the author, I, I think, in his desire to capture the terrible life that many of these folks lived, uh, wrote in a way that was very uh, vivid. Talk about the value of realism. We see things now on television, at least representations of autopsies. How many of us 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, ever thought that we would see on a weekly basis people conducting autopsies? And and yet there it is. Now, whether that's realistic is not for me to say. I'm not a physician. But it presents itself as being sort of documentary and realistic. How do we think about that as Christians? How do we negotiate the sort of bluntness, realism, and even coarseness to some degree of contemporary culture and media? Now, having just talked about the, for lack of better words, the coarseness and the realism presented in the book, clearly the medium in which the book presents it is very different from the medium that we're receiving a lot of what you recently talked about. For example, it's one thing to perceive reality through the eyes than it is through the ears. Does that make sense? And I think we need to be very careful because I think over this last, let's say, century, we've become a culture that's become engrossed with perceiving truth and reality primarily through the sense of the eyes. And in that, we've actually lost sight of what's really real. And these so-called reality shows, it's actually not reality, but it's made up reality in many ways, heightening certain things, emphasizing certain things that are not part of normal existence. And so for many, I think, watchers of these programs, whether it's CSI or Big Brother or what have you, we somehow get lost into these fantasy worlds that are not real. And I think that's part of the problem is we're starting to find meaning through our eyes and not through our ears. And I think that's the reason why the Apostle Paul and throughout Scripture so emphasized faith comes by hearing. And the only visual, the only visual thing that Scripture endorses are the sacraments. That's it. That's the only medium by which God has allowed us to view His wondrous grace. Other than that, it's through the Word, the craziness of hearing a sermon and finding life from that. That's an amazing reality. But that's essentially the nature of faith, isn't it? Blessed are those who believe, though they do not see. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. 
Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.